0: Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. J. David Cassidy. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about Chiropractic Science, so if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review by Brooke Craven, who says, awesome podcast. Dean, host of chiropractic science podcast, highlights all aspects of chiropractic health science and more in this can't miss podcast. The host and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens. Well, thank you for that review, Brooke. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You could do so on our website, either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram. So please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. J. David Cassidy. Dr. Cassidy is a professor of epidemiology and health policy at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He is also an adjunct globalization professor at the Faculty of Health at the University of Southern Denmark. He began his career as a chiropractor and later obtained graduate degrees in surgery, pathology, and injury epidemiology. His past appointments include Assistant Professor of Surgery and Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan, Associate Professor of Public Health and Medicine at the University of Alberta, Senior Scientist at the Toronto Western Hospital Research Institute, and Professor of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at the University of Southern Denmark. His research focus is Injury Epidemiology, Neurotrauma, Musculoskeletal Disorders, and evidence-based healthcare and policy. He has published over 300 articles uh, and chapters in textbooks over his career, including papers in the New England Journal of Medicine, the British Medical Journal, and Annals of Internal Medicine, JAMA Psychiatry, and the Archives of Physical Medicine and uh, Rehabilitation, to name just a few. He is particularly interested in the psychosocial determinants of injury, recovery, and long-term consequences of injury. He also serves as a coxswain in the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue on Canada's West Coast. Dr. Cassidy, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for such a long time, and I'm super excited to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast today. So thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much for, for hosting me.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to to dive in and and hear about uh, all the neat things that you've been up to in your career. I've read a ton of your articles, and I'm just uh, really excited to talk about them. So first, though, uh, probably the majority of listeners are are chiropractors. Can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, of course, that was many years ago. And at the time, I was a student at the University of Toronto, uh, and I had plans to, uh, to go into plant physiology. And uh, I started to realize that jobs in the area of plant physiology at that time were hard to come by. And I happened to meet a chiropractor, uh, David Drum, who uh, w- at the time was a chiropractor for the Na- National Ballet of Canada, and uh, I just found him to be very interesting. And uh, he had a, a beautiful office in downtown Toronto, which uh, which I visited. And uh, he gave he had written a book about uh, biomechanics, which he Uh, gave to me. And I read that and, and became quite interested in it, in the profession of chiropractic. So I applied to CMCC and was accepted and that's how I became a chiropractor.
0: That's terrific. So can you take us up through what your career has been like over the last, uh, let's say 20 or 30 years? Um, since you, after you graduated, uh, chiropractic school, I I know you went uh, out west in Canada uh, to start in on research, uh, and I believe also practice as a chiropractor for some period of time. Can you tell us about uh, those earlier experiences?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I graduated from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in 1975, and uh, practiced for a short time in Toronto. Uh, I didn't have my own practice, I practiced with a more experienced chiropractor. And then an opportunity came up to take a job in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on the prairies in Canada. Um, And uh, it was a, a combination clinical practice academic job. Uh, to work with uh, the then professor of orthopedics at the University of Saskatchewan, William Kirkaldy Willis, and uh, KW, as we called him at the uh, uh, back then, was uh, he was a Scottish missionary surgeon from Africa that had immigrated to Canada and had uh, become the head of orthopedic surgery at the University of Saskatchewan Medical School, and had become fairly famous as a person involved in the treatment of of spinal stenosis and uh, other uh, back problems. In fact, I think he was one of the first surgeons to fuse spines for tuberculous lesions, and he did most of that work in, in Africa. And uh, he was building up uh, academic department at the University of Saskatchewan at the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon, and he had worked with an osteopath chiropractor in Africa and wanted to bring a, a chiropractor into his uh, back pain service at the Royal University Hospital in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery there, and uh, so he approached uh, the chiropractic college and, and asked if there was a young chiropractor that would be interested in, in moving to Saskatoon and uh, working with him at the uh, university there, and I uh, applied for that job and was accepted, and and went out to Saskatoon, and I basically worked, uh, I worked as a chiropractor at the low back pain clinic at the University of Saskatchewan with Kirkaldi Willis, and also had uh, worked in an outpatient chiropractic clinic. In Saskatoon and I I did that for a number of years um, until about 1997 Uh, and after that I I went into full-time became a full-time academic or a university professor and during the uh, between 76 and 97 uh, I practiced as a chiropractor ran a chiropractic residency program uh, in conjunction with the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College uh, at the uh, Royal University Hospital. And basically, that was a program that chiropractors uh, from CMCC, chiropractic residents or postgraduate trainees, uh, participated in. And they came to Saskatoon and would do six-month rotations through the hospital attending back pain clinic uh, Rheumatology clinic, neurology clinic, pain management clinic. Um, so they there was a specialized residency for chiropractors, which and it was a very successful program. I think we put through probably around 60, 50 or sixty chiropractic residents. Um, and my role during that time was to participate in the training of those residents. And also to treat patients that were referred to the chiropractic service uh, through the back pain clinic, the chronic pain clinic, um, from neurologists, from rheumatologists, etc. And uh, also during that time, I completed a master's degree in in, uh, surgery, and the emphasis there was on orthopedic science. And then I also did a Ph.D. degree in human pathology, and my focus there was on um, was on disorders of the spine, and uh, later I subspecialized in ultrastructural changes in articular cartilage um, that were associated with aging. Um, yeah, and and. Uh, <laughs> So I was at the University of Saskatchewan uh, till 2000. After that, I was more focused in—I I became more focused in epidemiology and public health—and uh, I left Saskatchewan and moved to the University of Alberta. Uh, so that uh, basically was my time in Saskatoon. So I did have about 20 years of uh, at least part-time. Practice as a chiropractor, but the clinic we were in was very busy, and we saw lots of patients and and helped lots of patients.
0: That's terrific! What a what an amazing experience that you had, uh, not only working with Doctor Kirkaldy Willis, but just the that sort of residency program. Do you know if anything like that exists today?
1: Um, well, I believe that. CMCC still has a residency program, but I—it's—it's it's, uh, Saskatoon's not involved in it, and I'm not involved in it, and uh, so I can't really speak to it. But uh, I believe it's still ongoing. Uh, but I'm unsure about what their placements are. They're likely mostly in and around uh, the Toronto area, in Ontario, Canada.
0: Sure, sure. Well, Dr. Cassidy, you've published so many articles in top journals, uh, there's no way we could talk about them all. Uh, But I think if we sort of broke things down into clinical themes, uh, some major themes that you've had during your research career uh, seem to be, well, one uh, that received a lot of attention, of course, is uh, cervical spine manipulation and stroke, uh, neck pain, uh, whiplash, and uh, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. So if we could um, talk about some of these themes, uh, and I'm I'm sure this is going to help chiropractors uh, and their patients a lot to just hear you speak about each of these themes. Uh, so if you could, um, if we could start with the cervical spine manipulation and stroke theme, uh, and if you could tell us um, about your, experience your, your studies that you've done. Uh, the, the, of course the one that's received, uh, a lot of attention, uh, and still does is the 2008 study in spine about risk of vertebral basilar stroke and chiropractic care. Uh, so yeah, if you could give us a background and tell us, you know, what your experience is, uh, with that is, that would be terrific.
1: Yeah, gladly for sure. Um, just to uh, put some context into this, um, after our, uh, after I left uh, Saskatchewan uh, and at the end of my period in Saskatchewan, I was uh, I had uh, completed my doctoral degree in pathology, uh, but at the same time, I got asked to serve on a Quebec government task force with an epidemiologist who who was head of epidemiologists at epidemiology at uh, McGill University, Walter Spitzer, and uh, he uh, was in charge of developing guidelines, and he was a very famous epidemiologist who uh, was focused, one of the first uh, persons in Canada anyway, to focus on uh, guidelines, and one of his first guidelines was on whiplash, and it, you may have heard of it, it was Quebec Task Force on whiplash-associated disorders, and uh, so I joined that task force as a chiropractor, and and of course I had a doctoral degree in pathology, but he got me more and more interested in uh, psychosocial determinants of injury, because I was very focused at the time on pathology you know what happens to the disc. What happens to the joints? Uh, you know, traditional pathological approach uh, to uh, causation, and and he opened my eyes to um, th- things like psychosocial determinants of disease and recovery, and uh, introduced me to a professor a Swedish professor who was also on this task force, uh, Okanigran. And he was a professor of injury prevention and epidemiology at Karlinska Institute in Stockholm. And uh, I became more and more interested in that. So eventually I went to Stockholm and uh, completed a doctoral degree in epidemiology and injury prevention under Okanigran. And uh, so my, the focus of my career went from a very pathological approach to disease to a more public health uh, epidemiological perspective. And, uh, and so my career changed course. I was no longer focused on autopsy specimens and looking at uh, uh, pathology in spines and more focused on psychological determinants and social uh, determinants and risk factors for disorders. And near the end of my time in Saskatoon, there was an inquest called into the death of a young woman who had seen a chiropractor and had suffered a stroke sometime after seeing this chiropractor. And uh, the coroner at the time asked me if I would testify at this inquest uh, because I had a background as a chiropractor, of course, and I also had training as a pathologist, so I understood uh, some of the neuropathology around this issue. And uh, that uh, inquest got me thinking, uh, not just as a pathologist, but also as an epidemiologist, we really don't know much about this disorder, and we don't know really much about the causes of dissection-related stroke, especially in younger people. And that's really how I got interested in that issue. And as after my training in epidemiology, I became very focused on more advanced study designs and and how could we look at the issue of whether chiropractors are causing strokes in in young people or not. And uh, around that time, I got... uh, um, I got involved in a big project, uh, uh, which was part of the Decade of the Bone and Joint, 2000, 2010. And we, we, a group of us obtained uh, grant money to put together an international group to look at all aspects of the treatment of, uh, of neck pain, both whiplash and, and neck pain in the general population. And at that time, I started uh, discussing with uh, experts from around the world that were part of this task force that we should consider doing an a, a, a epidemiologic study to look at, you know, how common is this disorder? How often are people suffering strokes after seeing chiropractors? Uh, is chiropractic a risk factor for these types of strokes? Questions like that. And over time, we obtained, I obtained a, a grant from the Ontario government uh, to do a case control study and a case crossover study um, to see what, what the risk of, was of, of having one of these strokes after seeing a chiropractor. And uh, so I... We eventually did a study and published the study, and uh, it was a very large study. We looked at, uh, we had 109 million person years of observation over nine years, and we're, we're able to do this using Ontario health data. Uh, as you know, in Canada, we have, uh, we have a national healthcare system and uh, so we have data and at the time in Ontario chiropractors were funded by the government and we were able to link chiropractic visits to different hospital admissions including uh stroke. And so we use that data to uh complete a case control case crossover study. And a case crossover study is just a uh, a variant of the case-control study, but it's very powerful study design because it's uh, it it uh, for various reasons. One being that it uh, it uses cases as their own controls and therefore has much better control for confounding because when you're looking at causes of stroke, of course uh, there. Are many different risk factors for stroke, and to control for that in a large population-based epidemiologic study is always a challenge. Uh, And uh, so that's how that study came about. And, uh, you know, after, of course, these studies take years to complete just because it took quite a while to design the study. It took quite a while to obtain the grant money to do the study and then to do the study and write it up and publish it. And uh, so uh, we were able to complete that study and look at uh, the risk of vertebral basilar stroke and ch- uh, after chiropractic care and published that in uh, 2008.
0: Terrific. Uh, thank you for going through all that. That's a, a wonderful uh, background. Um, one of the um, ways that I, I really got to... Uh, I guess I've not met you in person, but I've uh, listened to you, and in particular, there was um, a case. Uh, the Connecticut Connecticut Board of Chiropractic Examiners had a hearing on informed consent. This was uh, back in 2010, and uh, you were uh, an expert witness uh, in that uh, hearing. And I just remember, you know, listening to. Uh, the testimony, and I f- uh, feverishly jotted everything down that I could about uh, what you said because it was it just it, it really furthered my understanding of the issue, and so I wanted to share just a couple of things that I wrote down and and get your thoughts to see if uh, your thoughts have uh, changed at all uh, from what they were. But these are the things that really struck me, uh, and this is in regards to the. In particular, the 2008 study that you just mentioned. So one of the quotes was, uh, we do not know that chiropractic care is a cause for VBA stroke. And therefore, if we do not know that, then informed consent is not really informed because we don't know what the risk is. uh, And we don't know if there is a risk. Okay.
1: Okay. I, I don't recall exactly what I said about, that, but I, I was actually taken a bit off guard by uh, that whole uh, that whole time in Connecticut. I, I was asked to come down and talk about my study, and it actually turned into quite a cross-examination that went on for hours, and it was yeah, televised. Yeah, that was long. So I was, so I was a little taken aback, and of course there were... Uh, there were quite a few anti-chiropractic people there that were, and lawyers that were, um, uh, that uh, really went after me over this whole thing. And that you know I wasn't expecting that, but uh, you know I mean that goes with the territory when you do these types of studies. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that epidemiologists focus on is 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 causes of disease. And, uh, you know, causes a stroke, Uh, even though we know quite a bit about risk factors for strokes, this particular type of stroke, which has been associated with chiropractic care, is both very rare and there have been very few good studies on what the risk factors are. Now, traditionally, as you know, strokes occur in older people. And we know quite a bit about that. You know, we know it's mostly due to atherosclerotic disease and hypertension and et cetera. Uh, But when these strokes occur in people under 50 years of age, uh, you know, it's surprising, and especially when they occur in even people that are younger. And uh, there has been uh, quite a few case reports published in the literature about you know, people seeing chiropractors and then having a stroke, or people attending air shows and looking up and having a stroke, or um, I think I saw a case history of someone who had uh, uh, gone to have their hair cut and had leaned back with their head in the sink and had a stroke. So this idea that rotating the neck can damage the... Uh, vertebral arteries as they transverse up through uh, the uh, foramina in the cervical spine uh, has really been posited by these case reports linking uh, cervical spine rotation to stroke. Uh, The problem with case reports is that there's no control group. Uh, So we have no idea if what person has written, they think, well, this stroke was caused by this or that. They really don't know because, you know, these strokes may have occurred anyway, and it may just happen to be associated with that, and that's not a, a, a cause. It's just something that uh, has piqued people's interest, so they write about it. Uh, so you really have to have a control group because these types of strokes are 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 occurring in the population, and we need to know if they're occurring more in people that have seen chiropractors than they are in just the people that have not seen chiropractors. So we have to have an exposed group and an unexposed group. We can't just take the exposed group and say, okay, that's a cause, because the same disease can be occurring in people that aren't exposed. And that's the whole idea behind... Uh, Doing a case control study on this issue gotcha. um, yeah, so anyway, that was the thinking behind that and uh yeah, it was an interesting uh, it was it was interesting to go to Connecticut and all these rapid fire questions and and being cross examined by lawyers but I mean the bottom line is that when you when you look at uh, these types of strokes they're rare and uh, we do know for example that uh, there are some good studies that show that people who have migraine headaches are at greater risk for these types of strokes but we're unsure even though there are case reports whether neck movements are associated with these types of strokes and specifically whether chiropractic treatment is associated with these types of strokes So in the case control study, we we had two exposure groups. We had people that had seen chiropractors right before the stroke, and we compared that risk to people that had seen their family doctor right before those strokes. And uh, there was really no difference in the risk between the two. Uh, And that indicated to us that uh, the more likely explanation is something we, in epidemiology, call protopathic bias, And what that is, is people are in the prodrome of having an outcome. Uh, In this case, it was in the prodrome of having a stroke. And they're seeking out care for the symptoms that are part of the prodrome. And in this type of stroke, the prodromal symptoms include headache and neck pain. And um, we know that people with headache and neck pain tend to go and see a chiropractor. They also tend to go and see their family doctor. So we know that the family doctors aren't manipulating these patients' necks. So if we compare the uh, rate of stroke in the people that saw their family doctor versus the people that saw the chiropractors and we don't see any difference in those exposures, then we can assume that uh, this is protopathic bias Uh, acting, acting in this case. And people are actually already in the prodrome of these strokes when they're seeking out chiropractic care.
0: Terrific. Thanks for going through that. Um, So after all of the work that you've done in this area, what do you think are the next types of studies uh, that need to be done? Or, or do you think we need to do a whole lot of other studies on this question at this point?
1: Well, there's been, it's a, it's a difficult issue to study. Uh, I think I mentioned we had over 109 million person years uh, of data in the study we published. So you need to use big, big databases to look at this, which means you're not going to see a randomized trial about this. Uh, you may see a cohort study, but if that happens, it's likely going to come from Europe or from other places where there's a lot of health data. And there have been two other studies that have used similar methodology to what I used, uh, and they're both American studies, actually. You may be familiar with them. Uh, One of them was published by a chap named Thomas Kozloff, and he used uh, U.S. Medicaid data, and another study was published by James Wheaton, also an American, who uh, I believe he used Medicaid B beneficiaries. So there, are, of course, our databases that you can use to look at that. And those studies more or less had the same result that we had. So there's a, some consistency there. However, there's another underlying issue that I think is important for people to understand, and that is... That healthcare pr- practitioners learn by looking at case reports. So, if you think about it, when you did your residency as a chiropractor or a, a medical doctor, what you mostly do is you follow around uh, a consultant or, or a teacher in a clinic and uh, look at cases. That's how you learn. So it's not surprising that clinicians like case reports. The problem is that you just can't infer causation from case reports. But of course, you know, if you spend time in a hospital, most of my career I've worked in a hospital, that's what everybody's talking about is cases. And as epidemiologists, we have to remind people, that's fine, learn from the cases, but don't make sweeping uh, statements about causation from cases, because especially when the outcome is rare, as in this type of stroke, um, it's uh, <laughs> there are other issues at play, there are other risk factors, there are other things you may not be considering, you need a controlled study to do that, and quite frankly, that's been a struggle for me and other epidemiologists who work in hospitals to get those ideas across to, uh, all types of clinicians who think differently because they've been taught by looking at cases.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I'll just bring up one last thing about the, uh, the hearing, uh, from Connecticut. Another question from the lawyer was, are medical reports and autopsy reports, medical evidence and and your answer was, well, you're using medical evidence, and I'm comfortable talking about scientific evidence. And uh, as you mentioned, case reports are not good scientific evidence. So I think that was a terrific uh, answer and, and, again, really furthered my understanding uh, of the issue and, and the way in which uh, uh, one needs to, to look at the evidence on on its whole. Uh, so. Thanks yeah, for,
1: I think it's. Yeah, yeah, I think. I, I just to jump in again. I think that it's. Uh, you know, it's important to understand the pathophysiology of disease, and the focus in training clinicians is on that. But um, it's also very important to understand uh, that what you see pathophysiologically might not be the cause for that disease and i think back pain which is something that uh, your audience would relate to is a good example because when when i was when my career was focused in pathology i was absolutely convinced that the pathology i was seeing at autopsy in the spine was likely the cause for that person's back problems we now know now that uh People can have disc herniations, facet arthritis, uh, you know, degenerative changes in their in their in their spine, and actually not be suffering from back pain. So the link between pathophysiology and causation sometimes isn't as clear or as obvious as one might think. And in fact, even today, I don't think there's any consensus the majority of back pain problems what the cause is and that's why you hear the term non-specific back pain and non-specific neck pain because if we knew it was due to facet joints we could call it you know facet syndrome or something like that and I used to be very focused on that and that's the way I used to think but uh now realize that uh that's not exactly true because people can have radiologic changes in their spine that are completely have nothing to do with their symptoms.
0: Absolutely, what and what a great point to to bring up. And it's something certainly we're seeing repeatedly in the literature these days uh, about those kinds of observations. But I'm not sure how common that is still in practice. I, I think the mindset still at least from what I see and hear is still kind of that pathological model. So hopefully, well, <laughs> the information well it's not,
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's not surprising because I mean, you just look at the way people are, are, are trained. Um, my niece right now is just completing your medical training and, uh, you know, her, her whole focus has been on pathophysiology and I've, actually been feeding her information about uh, the social determinants of health and uh, mostly because uh, she doesn't get that training. And uh, during my time working in medical schools, it was a big frustration for me. They would spend, students would spend lots of time in anatomy, physiology, all important stuff, of course, Uh, but have very cursory understanding of the social determinants of psychosocial determinants of health, which are extremely important and and this frustration of mine, I think, is shared by a lot of epidemiologists and health policy analysts who realize that medical care is important, uh, but it's not the main determinant of population health. Those determinants have to do with uh, education, income housing, uh, social capital, things like that. And uh, that's something that, of course, clinicians can't really treat that, so they're not very focused on it. But they have to realize that, and I think intuitively many of them do. I mean, if you see someone who's who's socially disadvantaged, they're likely to have more health problems than someone who's not.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting being a clinician. It's interesting being a researcher as well. And to, to couple the two is uh, very interesting. <laughs> so uh, now, Dr. Cassidy, can we talk about neck pain and whiplash a little bit? Um, if, if you could, uh, maybe just like you have for the issue with uh, strokes, if you could just kind of give us some of your insight over the years, maybe how you got started. Well, you already mentioned about the Neck Pain Task Force. So maybe start there uh, and then progress to to current day if you could.
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, this goes back to uh, the period between 1990 and 95 when I was a member of the Quebec Task Force on Whiplash Associated Disorders. And it was really the first attempt to summarize the world literature on whiplash and neck pain and and to try and understand uh, what the best treatment was, how common it was, what the causes were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh I think I mentioned, too, that that was my first exposure to epidemiologists who really were thinking completely differently than I was, because when I joined, I was uh, really uh, firmly in the biomedical, pathological, uh, uh, pathophysiological view of health, um, which was just a result of my training and uh, and they it really opened my eyes looking uh, becoming discussing whiplash and neck pain with uh, epidemiologists who who had a very different view on it. And anyway, we looked at the world literature and uh, came up with some recommendations on how to manage uh, whiplash. And I think the I can remember years ago we had a North American and uh, European press conference on this. And uh, the main thing the press focused on at the time after we had published this report in the journal Spine uh, was the fact that we uh, recommended that people not use cervical collars anymore after having a whiplash injury. And I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but many years ago when someone had a whiplash injury... Uh, we would put a soft collar on their on their neck and, and immobilize their neck. And uh, I think one of the main findings of the Quebec Task Force was that there was no evidence that that was helping people. In fact, there was no evidence that soft collars even immobilize the spine. And in fact, there was evidence that you were actually changing the person's psychology by reinforcing uh, kind of injury be, uh uh, sickness behavior. Now, let me elaborate on that a bit. If you have, if you're hit from behind and you suffer a whiplash injury in your motor vehicle, and uh, the EMS people come and they put you on a spinal board and they immobilize your neck, and they then you go to the ER and you have X-rays and other investigations, and then someone puts a collar around your neck and tells you. You know you've you've strained your neck and you need to rest and you need to uh, wear this collar and you need to stay off work. And let's say the second patient goes to a different uh, a different uh, ER with a different physician who's got more training in in the management of whiplash. So that physician, just like the first physician, is going to very carefully examine the cervical spine and rule out any uh, serious disorder, uh, such as fracture or dislocation. But th- this physician, instead of immobilizing that patient, tells that patient that, um, you know, you, you've had a, a strain to your neck, it's going to be sore for a few days. You can wear this collar for a day or two, but you should, you should stop wearing it as soon as possible. You should return to work as soon as possible. You do not have anything super serious wrong with your neck. You will recover quickly, uh, and you should try and get on with your life as quickly as possible. You should take this pain medication over a short period of time. Which patient do you think is going to have a better outcome, given that they both have a common whiplash injury?
0: For sure. The one that's, uh, more mobile, getting back to work quicker, uh, encouraged to get back to life.
1: And you're exactly right. And the randomized trials now show that, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's the same in low back pain. uh, uh I recall that, uh, um, A trial came out in the New England Journal of Medicine years ago showing that bed rest was a bad thing for back pain. Prior to that, the main treatment for back pain was to tell people to go to bed and take time off work. And we now know that, you know, given that you've ruled out any serious problem and the majority of back pain and neck pain is not a serious pathological condition. In fact, we call it nonspecific neck and back pain because we don't, we've ruled out any serious disease such as cancer or arthritis, inflammatory arthritis or, or fracture dislocation. Um, and tell those people to get on with their life. And, and that's helpful for them. And the ones that aren't able to do that are usually the ones that have uh, difficulty managing the pain or have been given bad advice or have had this sort of illness behavior reinforced. So um, one of the things that came up from the Quebec task force was the effect of illness behavior on recovery. And we did a a study using Quebec data, which was also published as part of this task force, that showed that uh, insurance factors might be very important uh, in recovery. And it, it gets to the same theme. If you have an insurance scheme that's rewarding people for having pain and suffering, though, those it's hard for those people to get better because if, if they're going to be paid for the amount of pain and suffering they have, uh, there's no real motivation for them to get better because if they're better... They're going to get less. And that sounds awfully cruel, but over and over again now, studies are showing that, um, especially in the case of whiplash, that if you have a system that promotes payments for pain and suffering and lawsuits around pain and suffering, those people will recover much slower than an insurance system that, Does not include lawsuits, includes payments for treatment if you need them, but no payment for pain and suffering. And uh, one of the main studies, and and probably one of the studies that I'm most proud of, was a study we published in the New England Journal after the Quebec Task Force. I I had an opportunity to do study everyone who had a traffic injury in the province of Saskatchewan Again, uh, Canada, we have universal health care, so we have good data and we can follow uh, people who have injuries. And in Saskatchewan, in particular, uh, there's government insurance for traffic injuries. Private companies aren't involved, and uh, uh, Saskatchewan government insurance collects. Uh, through uh, Saskatchewan government insurance, you're able to collect data on all traffic injuries in that province. And so I I was able to secure a grant to uh, look at all traffic injuries that occurred uh, over one year, over actually two years, in the province of... Uh, of Saskatchewan, which is a Canadian province in the prairies of about a million people. And we followed everyone over a year. And uh, in the middle of that study, the government decided to change the... And we didn't know about it until just before the study was started. And it actually... We had originally uh, had just designed a study to look at prognostic factors, what factors determine... Who gets better fast and who doesn't? Uh, But the government announced just before, after we had gotten the grant, but before we had started the study, that they were going to change the provincial insurance traffic insurance system from a tort to a no-fault system. And what that meant was there would no longer be any payments for pain and suffering, and that essentially uh, removed all lawsuits for traffic injuries. And they took that money, which was a lot of money, and invested it in rehabilitation centers across the province to manage traffic injuries—not just whiplash, but all traffic injuries. And guess what? Uh, what we found was that for the last, for the final period during which people were claiming under a tort system, there were lots of uh, lots of these uh, people had legal representation. And they took twice as long to recover as after the change in the system where there were no lawsuits, but people got, in in Canada, free care, as much care as they needed for their whiplash injury. Those people got better twice as fast. So that's a good example of how social policy can affect recovery. And the mechanisms behind that are complex, but they're not necessarily biological mechanisms. They're psychosocial mechanisms. And, and to me, that was very, very interesting. And, uh, of course, after that study was published, there was lots of controversy because lawyers didn't like it. Uh, and I uh, took a lot of flack from lawyers over that study. Uh but I, I think it's a very important finding health and, and has huge health policy implications.
0: Yeah. And wow, what a what an interesting turn of events. Did you <laughs> did you have any idea how that would come out when you heard the news that they were changing?
1: Uh at first I didn't really understand the implications. Uh I started to, after I thought about it and talked to other health policy people. Um, and uh, I was a little worried too, because I I realized that uh, there was a whole industry of injury lawyers in Saskatchewan at the time, uh, representing a lot of injured people. And of course, you know, you have to think about the other side. These injured people have been injured and they need some compensation. But is it wise to pay them for how much they're suffering? Uh, especially now, I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking about really serious injuries because that's a little different. Such as catastrophic injuries fall under a different set of rules. And in fact, prior to the change from tort to no fault, one of the motivations for the insurance company now this is a Crown government corporation, not a private insurance company, but they could see. That the treatment of people with severe brain injuries was very unfair, and the reason for that was because under a tort system they only had so many dollars uh, for treatment for their brain injuries, and then they had to sue for the rest, and uh, that was very unfair because you take someone that's been had a serious brain injury, and suddenly they have to they have to get a lawyer, they have to have a court case to determine how much money they're going to get to get on with their life. And, of course, that takes many years. It's much better if those people forget about the court case, give them everything that they need, give them all the treatment they need, help them fixing up their house or whatever else they need. That's way cheaper than having all these lawsuits. And it's way fairer because those people can get on with their life much quicker. And that was one of the main motivations behind changing this system. The, I mean, the government in Saskatchewan, they, they weren't out to make money off traffic injuries. They were out to serve the population. And I think that health policy change was great. I think as an interesting sidebar, uh, of course, there were many lawyers that didn't like this, and many lawyers are politicians. And eventually, there was enough pressure to force the government to uh, make a policy change years later, even though the no-fault system was working quite well. So that uh, under pressure, they decided to allow people to have the choice. So if they wanted to, they could choose to, to claim under a tort system where they could sue for pain and suffering, just like the old system. Or they could choose to be part of a no-fault system where they had... You know, I think it's up to two, over $2 million in in treatment benefits or even more. I'm, uh, I'm not sure now because I haven't been in Saskatchewan for years. And guess what? The majority of the population uh, stayed in the no-fault system. Uh, I think a few moved over to the tort system, but very few.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And you had mentioned... Uh, during that discussion about brain injury. And I think that's a perfect uh, uh, segue into our next topic area, which you've done a lot of work in, and that is a mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion. And you've done some work on sport-related concussions as well. Can you tell us what uh, you've done in this field?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, um, to put it in context, uh after I trained as an epidemiologist in uh, uh, and had, uh, I I I was doing that training through Karolinska Institute in in Stockholm, Sweden, and I had the opportunity to get involved in a WHO initiative uh, through Karolinska Institute. And uh, the head of neurosurgery there, and my supervisor, who is uh, head of injury prevention, epidemiology, and injury health, uh, injury prevention and epidemiology, they, they received the designation as a WHO collaborating center. So, uh, Karlinska, uh, which is a very prestigious medical university in Europe. It's the home of the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, they set up a WHO collaborating center that with a focus on neurotrauma. And as part of that, uh, there was a coalition of, uh, agencies that wanted to get involved in looking at, uh, the incidents, uh, the recovery, the treatment risk factors, uh, for mild traumatic brain injury. And, uh, for your listeners, that uh, probably most of them know this, but brain injury is uh, classified as mild, moderate, and severe. The majority are mild traumatic brain injuries. These are classified as uh, Glasgow Coma Scale less than uh, 15, uh, 13 to 15, 15 being no loss of, uh, or less than 30 minutes loss of consciousness after the injury, and less than. Uh, 24 hours of post-traumatic amnesia. Uh, and about 80% of brain injuries are mild traumatic brain injuries. So they're very common. And uh, sports concussion would be part of that. But it, most people who have a sports concussion don't lose consciousness. So it would be a very mild, mild traumatic brain injury. But originally my focus was more on on mild traumatic brain injury with more of a focus on traffic uh, injuries. In other words, mild traumatic brain injury occurring after traffic injuries. And we know that falls and traffic injuries are the main cause for mild traumatic brain injury, uh, for brain injury in general, actually. And so we got this uh, big coalition of experts from around the world together to do a very long look at and very in-depth look at mild traumatic brain injury. It involved experts from around the world. And uh, the work was done out at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. And at the end of that, we published a a supplement in the Journal of Rehabilitation Medicine uh, summarizing our findings on diagnosis treatment Uh, risk, etc., etc. So that's how I got into mild traumatic brain injury. And after that, I I moved more and more into MTBI or, or mild traumatic brain injury and more away from musculoskeletal. However, it's interesting because there's a lot of overlap between whiplash and mild traumatic brain injury. A lot of the symptoms are similar and we can get into that. Uh, So, you know, over the last few decades, I've been focused in that area and publishing in that area, and I was contacted several years ago to join a group of sports physicians and scientists who have every so many years published guidelines on the treatment of sports concussion. And I think they invited me because I had expertise in doing systematic reviews and Assessing uh, issues around causation, which are big in the area of sports concussion right now. And so I was invited to be a part of uh, uh, a consensus group that does a systematic review and publishes guidelines for physicians around the management of sports concussion. And we met in uh, Berlin, Um uh, several years ago, and ended up publishing our results and our guideline in the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, in, uh, I think that those articles were published back in March of 2017. So that's my long preamble of how I got involved in that.
0: You know, one and of I the heard- things... Oh,
1: go ahead. No, no, you go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, one of the things that... I think of when you're talking about uh, mild traumatic brain injury, it seems similar almost to what you're talking about with neck pain. Uh, Looking at the literature, now, you know, babying the neck or, you know, getting extended rest breaks uh, seemed to be the similar kind of recommendation for mild traumatic brain injury. And now it seems that, uh, you know, the recommendations may be, again, maybe a couple of days, but then... Uh, soon after let's let's get back to work let's get back to school if you're a child who just had a sport injury uh is that what you see also is that is that what the current recommendations are
1: yes almost to the point where uh, i was involved with a, a group of french epidemiologists at the university of bordeaux and um just because i moved back to north america at the time i was uh, living and working at the university of southern denmark uh, and I got involved with a group of epidemiologists in Bordeaux who were focused on injury epidemiology. And we we would have yearly meetings and discuss and think about different uh, issues around injury, and it got to the point where we started to realize that, um, you know, you have a physical injury in a traffic collision, let's say, or any type of or fall or something like that, Sure, you have the physical injury is is important, uh, and it's going to determine the acute treatment and the acute outcomes. Uh, but there are many commonalities about, uh, especially people who have persistent sim- symptoms. Many of the symptoms are similar. doesn't matter what the initial injury was. Uh, and many of the determinants of, recovery in people that are beyond, who haven't recovered during the acute or subacute period, many of those determinants are, are very similar. And a very good example is that, of that is how people cope with their, uh, not just their injury, but also how people cope with their chronic disease, for example. Um, if people uh, have good coping skills, and by that, I mean, they're not focused all the time on their disability. They're able to focus more on what they can do. Uh, they're able to sort of readjust how they think. They might end up with some disability, but uh, they, they kind of are able to redefine themselves. Okay, I have this disability, but I'm still able to function. Uh, they have a much happier life, and, and actually their symptoms improve more and faster than those people that are focused on their disability, won't uh, have withdrawn from society, uh, do not return to work. Uh, and, and that's another whole issue, I mean, because workplaces need to accommodate people with uh, disability. And if they do, these people are much happier. They have better health-related quality of life. And it, it, it really gets back to this point that Physical injury, of course, the acute care is very important. If you have a physical injury and you go to the hospital, uh, the doctors need to focus on your acute injury and get that under control and, uh, and treat it properly. But our healthcare system, in a way, fails people when they start to develop chronic problems. And the problem is after they've developed those chronic problems, it's very hard to Uh, get them back on the right trajectory. And so I've I've been involved in a number of studies where we've looked at and measured how people cope and measured their coping behavior before they become uh, chronic. In other words, they have an acute injury and uh, we measure some of their behavioral traits, uh, how they view how to cope with injuries, and the people that have a very active view on how to cope with things, in other words, they're they not passively trying to cope with everything. They're not, they're not thinking, oh, I'm a victim. Oh, my doctor needs to help me. Oh, uh, there's not much I can do to help myself. I shouldn't be very active. If you compare those people with the same injury to people that think, okay, I've got a make a big effort to help myself, I'm going to get back to work, I'm going to get better, Uh, I'm not going to focus on my injury all the time, I'm not going to focus on my pain all the time. They just have better coping mechanisms, and the reasons for that are very complex and not completely understood. But those people, they get better way faster than, than people who have what we call maladaptive coping. And, and that's pretty much across all injuries. And uh, i personally published studies on whiplash and brain injury and back pain. And we always see the same thing, that, that uh, coping behavior is a big determinant of recovery.
0: Yeah, so important, so important. Do you have any tips for us clinicians on how to help people with that?
1: Well, I think the... Uh, it's not my tip in particular, but I think most of the guidelines, uh, especially around uh, conditions that chiropractors might treat, like back pain and neck pain, um, they would. their focus, of course, is to make sure that you don't contribute to the illness behavior of your patient. Okay, so how would you do that? How How might a clinician end up doing that? Well, they might do that by... Uh, over-treating the patient. They might do that by uh, applying passive treatments to the patient and not trying to mobilize the patient and get the patient more active. And they might do that by, by saying, okay, I'm going to look after you, don't worry about things, I'll take care of everything. Whereas another clinician might say, okay, well, we'll tackle this together I need you to really make an effort to do exercises, to re-engage in your previous life, to try and get back to work. And it's important for workplaces to um, accommodate injured workers. And even if they can only go in uh, for, for a few hours a day or a few hours a week uh, to return to some form of injury and uh, during the time I was a professor at the University uh, of Toronto and working at the Toronto Western Hospital, I, I ran a center uh, that was uh, uh, focused on, on uh, return to work and recovery after workplace injuries. And the main thing that we learned there was that... Uh, industries that have very well developed vocational rehabilitation programs where they do where they welcome injured workers back and accommodate them and offer them part-time return to work and escal- escalating return to work where they start very slowly for only a few hours and and increase over time those people actually do do way better than you know the the person who's fighting with their supervisor and won't return to work, or a workplace that won't offer them accommodated work, uh, that that offer of workplace accommodation is is actually more powerful than 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 whether they have physiotherapy or chiropractic or medical care. So again. Getting back to this theme of sort of what I've done in my life, I've, I started as a clinician and, of course, clinical care is very important, but we cannot uh, ignore the psychosocial determinants of recovery. We cannot ignore people's coping behavior. We cannot ignore that they might be depressed because people that are depressed aren't going to get better. We cannot ignore that they don't have a cooperative workplace that's not offering uh proper uh, workplace accommodation, we cannot ignore that this person hates their job because their supervisors, uh, they're in conflict with their supervisor all the time for various reasons. All those issues contribute greatly to how people recover from workplace injuries, for example. And it's the same thing with other types of injuries, and getting back to the Bordeaux group, uh, we and and i i no longer participate in that group but i know that they are very very focused on what are the common symptoms and the common issues across injuries uh and should we maybe re- help clinicians rethink this you know don't label people as a brain injury because the they they may have a mild traumatic brain injury acutely but they're not going back to work because they have ongoing neck pain or headaches or whatever. And chiropractors could contribute in this. Uh, for example, in mild traumatic brain injury, one of the most common uh, symptoms uh, six months out is, is neck pain uh, and headache. And, you know, chiropractors are involved in treating that. So these people will go and see chiropractors. And as a chiropractor, you want to make sure you're aware of that person's... Uh, Social uh, situation, you know, as part of the problem that their workplace isn't accommodating them. You have to be aware of their family situation. Is their family supportive of them, or is their family contributing to their, you know, illness behavior by doing everything for them and telling them, you know, you need to rest all the time? So all these it, healthcare is very complex, uh, and especially when you get out beyond the acute period.
0: Well, what a fantastic summary. My mind is uh, expanded greatly (laughs) and I'm sure it will take me uh, some time to process uh, uh, all of those details. Um, I'd like to end uh, today with uh, one thing that I ask all of my guests, which is to uh, provide any uh, advice uh, or motivation to assist practitioners or students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. So, if you could offer anything uh, to those who might be thinking about a career in uh, chiropractic science, or, or perhaps just science in general, that would be terrific.
1: Yeah, I'd like to, uh, and of course, this is my own personal bias, but I think you know there's a good argument for this that I, having worked in Europe. And having worked in, uh, in North America, in Canada, I haven't worked in the U.S., but I suspect Canada and the U.S. are similar. Uh, in North America, there's a big, big focus on basic science research. And uh, in uh, Northern Europe or in Scandinavia, where I've worked, in Denmark and Sweden, there's, there's a much bigger focus on clinical research. That includes psychosocial determinants of health. And uh, I would like to encourage chiropractors to uh, uh, look at careers in clinical research and and not, and not focus so much on basic science because I think I think the answers to a lot of the issues that were uh, chiropractors are involved in the treatment treat conditions that they're involved in treating, the determinants, basic science isn't going to solve it. What's going to solve it is more research into clinical care, long-term clinical care that includes uh, looking at psychosocial issues. And, you know, for example, uh, even in my own career years ago, I saw this. At the end, you know, I started out as a chiropractor thinking very traditionally, thinking in terms of pathology and, you know, what happens when I manipulate a spine? Am I affecting the disc and, and, and the facet joints, et cetera? In the end, my last year of clinical practice, I was working at a student health center at the university uh, and as part of a multidisciplinary group that included myself, the chiropractor, a family doctor, uh, a pain psychologist, and a social worker. And uh, if someone, if a student came in to that center with acute back pain, uh, often it was a GP and myself as a chiropractor that were involved in that care, if a student came in and they were having recurrent musculoskeletal problems or recurrent uh, headaches or back pain, neck pain, things like that, and we already knew that they were healthy. The focus was more on their psychology. So, you know, they might receive uh, care from the GP. Well, they'd be seen by the GP. Uh, they might see a specialist to rule out something. But they were spending more time uh, with, and they might see the chiropractor, who, who, who at the time would try and help them get over their acute symptoms. But uh, to really help that person in the long term, there was more emphasis on their social situation, and on their uh, on their managing their chronic pain, and giving them uh, tools to to deal with that. And uh, for example, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is now being applied across lots of injuries, and and the results are are promising. They're not. It's not the only answer, but nowadays health conditions we understand them as being more complex. So I think the future for chiropractors is to be integrated more into the system. And of course, in Denmark, I saw that because chiropractors are trained at a medical school. In North America, chiropractors are trained outside of the medical system, and they're not integrated into that system. And uh, now some have done that through their own efforts after they graduate to work in clinics with clinical health psychologists and others. But I think the future, not just for chiropractors, but for family doctors even, is to work in health centers that offer more wide-ranging care uh, for their health conditions, because you know we're more one of the big problems we face in society right now are chronic diseases. And those chronic diseases, uh, they have lots of implications beyond just uh, medical care. You know, they have social implications, they have psychological implications. And unless you're dealing with that person holistically, um, I don't think they're getting the best care. So just to get back to your question, I'd like to encourage uh, chiropractors, if they're interested, if they're foolish enough to go into research, <laughs> to, uh, to um, yeah, consider a career... Um, you know, outside of the traditional basic science approaches of bubbly test tube stuff, and maybe focus more on uh, clinical issues and, uh, you know, um, psychosocial issues. The problem with that is that our payment systems, of course, are, are focused on acute care, and. Uh, but I still think that... Um, if chiropractors were to spend more time doing that, I would you'd see better integration into the system and I saw that firsthand in Denmark where there's way more focus on on clinical studies and uh uh prognostic studies looking at you know what are the main factors that are stopping people from getting back to work and how can we as a chiropractor contribute to that as part of a multidisciplinary team
0: mm yeah. Wow, such, such great advice. And uh, I must say this interview has been such a treat for me. Uh, as I said, I've, I really wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time. And I especially enjoy just listening to you speak about the things that you love to do. It's always a pleasure to hear uh, what other chiropractic researchers and researchers in general have been up to. But uh, your career is such a A fantastic career. So thanks for doing what you've done for all of these years and contributing to our profession and, uh, the health professions in general. So thank you for that. And thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this interview with Dr. J. David Cassidy. I know I certainly learned a lot during this talk and I hope you did as well. Stay tuned for more great interviews coming up. Also, if you didn't know, We are now on YouTube, so check out our YouTube channel, Chiropractic Science. Bye for now.